Scripture reading this morning is from John, chapter 1, verse 6 through 13, and it's on, in the Pew Bible, page 71 in the New Testament. So again, John 1, chapter 6, or chapter 1, verse 6 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Hear the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well this morning. And um, we've had an exciting couple of weeks around here with uh, the wedding yesterday with Gordon and Levita. It was uh, such a blessing. And it's even more joyful to see them here this morning, uh, worshiping with us together as, as man and wife. So um, we've also had uh, a couple of births the last couple of weeks, and uh, we want to uh, draw attention to that this morning. Uh, you guys know that the Heffler family welcomed uh, Sophie Joy Heffler into the world uh, a couple of weeks ago. And then uh, yesterday morning, I received news that uh, the Choi family was, uh, had welcomed Zachary Thomas Choi into the world at 4.24 a.m. And so he was a whopper. He was eight pounds, 11 ounces, and a little butterball. But he is the cutest thing. Well, all babies are super cute. You can't say a baby's not cute. If you do, you're unholy. But, um, but no, Zach is, Zach is cute. Sophie is cute. And um, I am uh, filled with thankfulness to the Lord for the rich blessings that he's poured on this church and that he's enabled us to share in, even vicariously, uh, through others. And so it's a mark of unity when we can rejoice in the good blessings that God gives to others. And um, I'm finding myself rejoicing very much in that. The two roses up here are... Uh, standing there to remind us of Sophie and Zach and uh, a marker of our thankfulness for them coming into the world, but also a call for us to pray for them. We as a church body have a responsibility for those who are entrusted to our care, uh, corporately even, to the children who come here. We have a responsibility to pray for them and to point them to the Lord and to help mom and dad do that very thing as well. So. Let these roses not only remind you of their birth and be a cause of celebration, but also remind you of your responsibility to love these children and to teach them the ways of the Lord in every way that you can. And, uh, now, with that said, I'm glad that we're going to be returning uh, to the Gospel of John this morning. Last weekend with Resurrection Day and Good Friday, it was uh, busy and good to remind ourselves of the sacrifice of Christ and his victory and his resurrection on our behalf. But I'm, I'm glad to be back in the Gospel of John. 
Um, we're going to be looking today at uh, Born of God from verse 13 of chapter 1. And um, before we get into that, would you pray with me and ask for the Lord's blessing, to be honest. Our Heavenly Father, we are always reminded of how needy we are and how dependent we are, Lord, and not only of our neediness and, and our dependence upon you, but also of your sufficiency, Lord, and your willingness to meet every need that we have. Uh, what a great joy and a great hope that belongs to us through your promises, Lord, that have been sealed through the blood of your Son, that we can come to you and we can trust that you will fulfill every good promise you have made to us as those who are trusting in you. And uh, Father, we, we lift up Sophie to you. We lift up Zachary to you. And we pray for them. We pray for their lives, Lord, that you would equip and strengthen their parents to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that their fathers would be diligent in teaching them the word of God, that their families would be... Um, I guess, would have an atmosphere of word-centeredness, as you call us to have in Deuteronomy 6, that the word of God would be on our lips as we're lying down and rising up, as we're walking by the way, as we're sitting in our home, that they would be written upon the very doorpost of our homes and on the walls of our habitations, Lord. We want, we want your word to be central, and I pray that you would give these families grace, Lord, to make the truth and the scriptures that you've handed to us central in raising their children and ordering their families. Yeah. Father, may you bring these young children to faith, saving faith in Christ Jesus very early in their lives, Lord. Spare them from the destructive influences of sin that so many of us have had to walk through Before you brought us to yourself, God, I, I pray you would spare them of that. Spare them of the pain. Spare them of the, the struggle and, and, and teach them very early how to put their faith and their trust in you, Lord Jesus. Teach them how to walk according to your commandments. Teach them how to love you through obedience, Lord Teach them how to rest in you, in your goodness, and in your sufficiency. And Father, we lift up Gordon and Levita to you really with the same prayer that their family, as it is now beginning by your grace, that it would also be centered around your word. Yes. Lord, that Gordon would be faithful in washing his wife with the water of the word, that Levita would be faithful in receiving that washing from her husband. And, Lord, that both of them would walk together with holy joy in this holy covenant of marriage and really put the gospel of Christ on display in the way that they live with and treat one another. And, uh, Lord, we thank you for these many blessings, Lord. Help us, help us live in the joy of those blessings. Help us be thankful to you and have pure hearts that truly do turn to give thanks to you for what you've given to us. We don't want to be like the nine healed lepers that did not return. Lord, we want to we be like the one that turned back to give praise to you for your blessings. So please, Lord, give us that grace this morning. 
As we turn to your word, would you shape our hearts and, Lord, fashion our minds so that we would understand your truth, receive it with faith, and live and walk in it in holy obedience and love for your name. Father, bless, bless the preaching. Please guard my, my mouth and let me not say anything that's unhelpful or untrue. Guard the ears of your people. Let them hear only what your word says. And Lord, may you be magnified among us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, the precious name of our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, we have uh, walked through this opening section of, of John chapter 1 for a number of weeks now. Um, the last time we were here, we had made it at least touching on verse 12. And uh, just in summary, a recap of what we've seen. Um, so far in these opening verses, we've been introduced to this person called the Word. Um, we've been introduced to the Word's relation with God the Father, or to God the Father. We've been introduced to the Word's relation to all of creation. And we've been introduced to the Word's relation to humanity. And we've also been introduced to mankind's or humanity's greatest problem. In our fallen sinful state, we are enveloped and corrupted by what John chapter 1 verse 5 calls darkness. We're no longer able to discern the light of truth that God the Son, who is the Word, we're no longer able to discern the light and truth that God the Son has been shining upon us from the very beginning of creation. Uh, through creation itself and through the light of our consciences, the Son of God has been shining upon us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God from the very beginning of time. But in our corruption, in our darkness, in our state of sinfulness, we have been uh, turned or changed into this state where we can no longer discern or comprehend that light that he's been shining. We sense elements of it. We, we sense the residue of it left over but we can no longer discern exactly what it is in our fallen state. So that's humanity's problem. Now we've entered into verses 6 through 13, where John is laying before us really just in introductory mode here. We're not, we're not digging into these things fully. We're just being introduced to these concepts and these ideas. We're getting the files sorted in our brains so that as we walk through the rest of the gospel, we'll be able to sort the information and put it in the correct file. That's what John's doing here in this opening section. In verses 6 through 13, we're being introduced to the three main ways that God moved to confront or overcome or deal with humanity's darkness in a way that would lead to our salvation. Now we saw the first thing he did was he sent John, a man named John, to be a witness for the light, a witness to the light that was coming. And really in John, what we find is the summation of the entire ministry of the prophets in the Old Testament. So everything that God has been doing in the Old Testament in speaking forth the word and the truth and preparing his people for the coming of the Messiah, all of that reached its apex in the ministry of John the Baptist. And so in part of, part of God's plan in addressing humanity's darkness and bringing about our redemption was sending forth John to be a witness for the light, 
so that we might believe in the light, it says. Now, the second stage of God's plan in bringing about our redemption was sending forth the word into this world to shine upon us in a new capacity and with a, uh, a new fullness. He sent his word into this world of darkness in order that he might be our light in the midst of our darkness. So no longer shining upon us from outside of the world, if you will, if you want to think of it in this way, but sending forth the word into this world to break open the darkness from the inside. That's part, the second part of God's plan in addressing our darkness. But there's still a problem. What we find in Scripture is that even when we look at the ministries of John the Baptist and look at the ministries of Jesus Christ, even those ministries were not enough to rattle humanity out of the darkness in which we are trapped. As John 3, verses 19 through 20 tells us, when natural man comes into contact, when natural man is exposed to the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that was shining upon us through Jesus Christ, what does he do? His knee-jerk reaction is to run away from that light. It tells us here that the light comes upon man in sinfulness and exposes mankind in their darkness. Now, because of that, because that's what the light does, Mankind, who is very comfortable in darkness and is very happy in sin, does not want to come to the light. In fact, it says that they hate the light because it exposes them for what they truly are and it exposes what they are doing in the light of what it truly is. It's evil. And the fact that we delight in evil shows a lot about who and what we are. So when the light shines upon sinful men in our natural state, what it's going to do is cause us to run away from that light. Humanity needs something, in other words, humanity needs something greater to happen if we are going to be saved out of our darkness. We need something greater than the ministry of John the Baptist. We even need something greater than the manifestation of the Son of God before us, before our very eyes in this world. We need something that reaches deeper than what can be experienced by our sensory perceptions. The ministry of John the Baptist came so that the message might be proclaimed and heard with the ear. The life of Jesus Christ presents to us the glory of God in the face of Christ in a way that could be seen, sensory perceptions. But in order for those two things to have an actual effect and bring about our salvation, we need something to strike us deeper and harder than just what we can see and what we can hear. We need something that goes further down than just what we hear and something that penetrates deeper than what we see. We need a radical, substantial, even a disruptive change to take place in our very souls if we are going to be delivered out of our darkness. We need an upheaval and an overturning of the darkness as it exists in our hearts in order that our love affair with sin and evil would be cut off and we would be set free to love the light of God shining in Christ. 
In other words, as John 1.13 tells us, we need to be born of God if we're going to be saved. Now, you need to notice a connection here. Before I get into unpacking verse 13, you need to notice the connection between verse 12 and 13. What John is telling us in verse 13 is the reason for which those described in verse 12 actually believed and received Jesus Christ as the light. Read with me in verse 12. But as many as received him, it says, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. I think the ESV is what I have up there. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So what are we talking about right here, first of all? What's happened to those who received him and believed in his name? They've become children of God, right? They have been, if we want to use a different phrase, they have been saved. They have been delivered out of their sin. They have been brought into a reconciled relationship with God because they have received Jesus and they have believed in him. Now, verse 13, in verse 13, John gives us the reason why they received Jesus and the reason why they believed in him. Why did they receive him when his own people did not? Why did these some receive him when the rest of the world didn't even know him? Well, John tells us in verse 13, the reason they received him, the reason they believed in him, was because they were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but because they were born of God. In other words, there is an event that takes place that is orchestrated by God that causes us to be able to receive Jesus. So there's a prior working that God does in our hearts that enables us to receive and believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And apart from that prior work of God taking place in our hearts, we're not going to receive him. And we're not going to believe in him. That's the connection between verses 12 and 13. And you need to see that because that is going to be fully unpacked as we walk through this gospel of John. Being born of God is lifted up as the cause for why some actually believed and received Jesus. Now that brings up a couple of questions that we need to address this morning. Maybe one of them that comes to mind anyway, I don't know if it will be addressed this morning, but one question is, what does it mean to be born of God? If being born of God is the reason why we believe and receive Jesus, what does it mean to be born of God? Really, John 1.13 doesn't address that. It simply makes the statement and leaves it hanging there and waits until John chapter 3 to explain to us what it means to be born of God. Because it's in John chapter 3 where we are seeing more about the nature of the new birth and the vital role that the Holy Spirit plays in that process. But here in John chapter 1 verse 13, the reality is simply stated. Now, I don't want you to wait until John 3 to understand what we're talking about when we're talking about being born of God. So just in summary fashion, let me give you an overview of what we mean when we're talking about being born of God. Just in summary, when we're speaking of the new birth, 
When we're talking about being born of God, we are talking about a radical spiritual transformation that takes place in the heart of every true believer. John Owen described this as a spiritual renovation of our nature. So you think of renovating something. We renovated our house whenever we purchased it. We gutted the entire thing and redid it all from the ground, basically from the ground up. We had the outside walls still standing, and that was it. We renovated the house. We made it new. Well, that's what being born of God is. It is God coming into your house, renovating you entirely, and making you new from the inside out. It's what's called in uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 5, the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. You think about what it means to be generated, what it means to be created or brought about. Well, to be regenerated means that you have been recreated. You have been brought about in a new way, Right? That's what it means to be born of God. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 27, describes being born of God as the work that God does when he takes out the sinner's heart of stone, the heart that's dead to God, and replaces it with a heart of flesh. A heart that can respond to God, a heart that can interact with God, and then fills that person with his Holy Spirit to make that person willing to obey God. That is the work of God in causing a person to be born of God. It is taking out that heart of stone that does not respond to the Lord, giving that person a new heart, a new spirit, and then adding on top of that his Holy Spirit himself to make us willing and able to obey. Really, 2 Corinthians 5.17 describes this most succinctly. What does it mean to be born of God? It means nothing less than being made a new creature. That we've been made to die. We've been brought up out of our death and sin. We've been delivered from our darkness. And we have been brought to a new spiritual life before God in Christ Jesus. Now we're going to dig into that more when we get to John chapter 3. But just in summary, when we're talking about being born of God, that's what we mean. We mean this radical change that takes place, that takes us out of our sin, that causes us to die, that love of sin to die, and gives us a new and holy love for Jesus Christ and sets us walking in a new way. It, it's not merely turning over a new leaf, okay? It's not simply deciding that you're going to get up and walk in a better way and be a better person. That's not what it means to be born again. Being born again is not decisionism. It's not I decided that Jesus would be my Savior, therefore Jesus became my Savior. We're going to get into that in a minute. Being born again is something radical that takes place and it's disruptive in your life. It takes you out from the state that you were in and puts you into a new state of relationship and fellowship with God. It is a supernatural work of God. It is miraculous, if you will. It, In fact... 2 Corinthians 4, 6 describes this as being on par with God's work in creation itself. That the very power of God that it took to create the world is the power of God that is used in bringing about a new creation in the sinner's life. This is a power that is in accordance with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, it says in Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. 
This is, a, this is a radical change that happens in the life of every single believer. Now, the way that radical change manifests may not look the same, but it will always be present in a person who is truly belonging to Christ. We'll get to that in the future. But here in John 1.13, we are simply being introduced to this notion of being born again, being born of God. As I mentioned, it's, just, it's not explaining what the new birth is. It is answering the question, where does this new birth come from? What is the source of the new birth? And John answers this for us in four ways here in John chapter 1, verse 13. We find three phrases that are telling us where the new birth does not come from. And we find one phrase telling us where the new birth does come from. So notice first with me in verse 13, the first phrase about where the new birth does not come from. It says that those who received him, those who believed in his name, are those who were born not of blood. In other words, those who were born of God or those who received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord are not those who have been born of blood. That is, being a true child of God through faith in Christ is not determined or enabled by a person's bloodline or family heritage. That's what the Jewish people thought. Largely because of the way they understood or the way that they misunderstood what it meant for them to be the people of God in the Old Testament... They thought that they were automatically in the door of the Messiah's kingdom. <laughs> I love having the children in our, in our worship service. I want, every, I want to take this opportunity to affirm that I want the children in this room when we are worshiping and hearing the preaching of the word of God. And if you don't like the children being in here, that really is kind of your problem. Um, <laughs> And I don't mean that to be overly offensive. I just mean, this is such a parenthesis, I'm sorry. In Deuteronomy 6 and in Ephesians chapter 6, we find the clear evidence that God expected children to be in the midst of the worshiping assembly of his people. Right? That's going to be referenced here in a minute too, so I'm getting ahead of myself. But... I just want to affirm that in front of everybody. If you have children and your children wind up being a little loud at some point, you don't need to feel awkward about that. Um, don't feel that everyone's judging you and that you gotta, you gotta somehow keep your kids quiet. No, we're, we're gracious in this church, we're patient and we understand that things happen, but we also believe that it's very important for those children to be here among us. Okay, so, amen. All right, with that said, those who received Jesus, those who believed in his name, were not those who were born of blood. That is, they're not enabled to be or determined to be God's children simply because of the family into which they were born or the bloodline from which they descend. That's what the Jewish people thought. And they largely thought that because of the way they understood or misunderstood what it meant to be the people of God under the Old Testament. They thought that they were automatically in the door of the Messiah's kingdom simply because they belonged to the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right. They assumed that belonging to the physical descendants of Israel meant that they were automatically born into a right relationship with God. 
Now, to their surprise and even to their offense, when the Messiah finally did come, they were told that their being Jewish was not enough to qualify them to be members of his kingdom. It wasn't enough that they were born Jewish. That was not enough to enable them to come into the kingdom of God. They had to be born again in order to be the people of Christ. They also had to manifest true repentance of sin. And they had to have real trust and faith in Jesus as the Messiah if they would be saved. That's just what John the Baptist told them in Matthew 3, 9. He said, do not suppose that you can, speaking to the Jews, do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. But as verse 8 says, what did God want from them? He wanted them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, in other words, God was not looking merely for physical descendants from Abraham to be his children. If God simply wanted physical descendants from Abraham to be his children, then he could have raised those up from rocks. He is the God who speaks into existence things that do not exist. If he wanted to simply have physical descendants from Abraham, he could bring it forth out of the stones. God's not looking for physical descendants. He is looking for those who actually walk in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham. He is looking for those who have a genuine heart of love for him that manifest in living a life of of true holiness and repentance. He wants to see in these people, according to John the Baptist, and even in us, according to the witness of Scripture, not what bloodline we come from. That's not what God is after. What God is after is the fruit of holiness that brings glory and honor to his name. That's what he wants to see in our lives. Now, the scriptures tell us over and over again that God is after our hearts. He's not merely after externalism. He's not after the ritual. He's not after, even here, the bloodline. He's after a spiritual descendant that has a heart that truly loves God and seeks to honor God as his or her father. That's what God is looking for. Well, that's not how the majority of Jews understood salvation to be gained. And sadly, there are many people today who think the same way that the Jews thought when Jesus came. There are parents who think that God will save their children simply because the parents are believers. And listen, we are are a, a church that holds to baptistic principles. We believe every single person must be born again, but that mentality creeps in so subtly that it can even be unnoticed by us. You think that your children are okay simply because they were born into your family or they go to this church or they hear this preaching or you read the scriptures to them. You have family devotions regularly and faithfully. That does not guarantee that your children are going to be believers. It does not guarantee that they are children of God. There are parents who think that about their children. There are kids who think that they are in a right relationship with God because of who their parents are. Right? Some of the children here may think that they belong to God simply because they were born into a believing family. Many people in Africa and throughout Eastern Europe think that way. That is not the case. I remember one lady I spoke to uh, 
told me, she assured me that despite the way she was living her life, she knew that she was going to be going to heaven because her father was a pastor. And I said, ma'am, if only that were the case. If only that were the case. In fact, actually, I don't want that to be the case because I do not want my children's salvation resting upon my faithfulness as a pastor or a father or a husband. That's not how salvation in the new covenant works. No one is born as a Christian because they were born into a Christian family. Every true Christian is one who has been born again into God's family. We see that in Jeremiah 31, verse 34, where God makes clear that the only ones who will be saved in the new covenant are those who have been spiritually birthed into a new relationship with him. Verse 33 begins by by saying, this is the covenant, speaking of the new covenant that God was going to make with his people, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? Why will they not be teaching each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord? Because, God says, they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. There will not be a single member of this new covenant who will not truly know the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. You hear the personal dealings of God with these people who are members of the new covenant. Their sins are not forgiven on behalf of their parents. Their sins are not forgiven on behalf of the church that they attend. Their sins are forgiven because they have personal and direct and and intimate interaction and fellowship with God himself. In the new covenant, there is no substitute for having personal dealings with God. I want you to hear this. I'm running a little bit on this point because it's very important. If you are going to be saved in this time when the gospel of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed, you personally must have personal dealings with God. You must personally experience God's saving power in your own life or else you have not yet been saved. You must feel the warmth of the light of Christ embracing your soul or else you will not have the strength or the encouragement or the ability to let go of the coldness and darkness of your sin in order to have him. As Romans 5, 5 says, you yourselves must have the love of God poured into your heart if you are going to be confident that your hope in God is not in vain. That is not something that is merely notional. That's not merely a mental assent, knowing that Jesus Christ is true or that God is real. That is an experiential That is an experiential relationship that you have been brought into with God himself where his love is so vital and so real and so near to you that it can only be described as having been poured out into your heart. That's what it means to be born again. I hope you don't mind, but I can't help but bring J.I. Packer in at this point. 
Many of you have read Knowing God, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. If you have not read that, you need to read that book, Knowing God. Well, when he was referring to John chapter 17, verse 3, where it describes eternal life as knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ whom he sent, J.I. Packer wrote the following. He said, knowing God is a matter of personal dealings, as is all direct acquaintance with personal beings. You can't know someone, in other words, without having personal dealings with that person. Right? You can't have fellowship with the church if you never attend church. If you're never in fellowship with the people of God, you don't come to know them. They don't come to know you. You can say that you're married to someone, but if you're never around that person, you never live with that person, you never interact personally with that person, you don't know that person, no matter what the status of your relationship might be officially. Well, J.I. Packer, knowing God is a matter of personal dealings, as is all direct acquaintance with personal beings. Knowing God is more than knowing about God. It is a matter of dealing with him as he opens up to you. Isn't that sweet? It is a matter of dealing with God as God opens up to you. You hear that language of John or James 4.8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He says, knowing about God is a necessary precondition to trusting in him. That is true. But the width of our knowledge of God is no gauge of the depth of our knowledge of him. So however broadly our knowledge of God might be, if you can rattle off the, the most orthodox descriptions of theology throughout the whole history of the church and tell me what every single Reformed confession has ever said about anything throughout the history of the church, that is not a measure of how deep your knowledge of God is. You can tell me about Burkhoff and Bavink and all these other guys and Calvin and Luther and Edwards and, and, and uh, Murray. You can, you can rattle off whatever they had to say about anything, but that will not reveal the depth of your personal knowledge of God in relation to those things. J.I. Packer says, you can have all the right notions, you can have all the right ideas of God in your head without ever tasting in your heart the realities to which they refer. And I want you to understand something. This is dealing with the eternal state of your soul right now. If you only have a knowledge of God that is mental... And you have no real, tangible relationship with God through that knowledge, then you are still lost and you need to be saved. I'm not asking if you doubt your salvation ever, either. I was manipulated three times into being baptized over again by some evangelist who told me that if I was not 100% sure, if I, if I was 99% sure of salvation in God, then I was 100% lost. Damn that man and his teaching. That's heresy. No, it is the faithfulness of God that we rest upon for our assurance of salvation. But the evidence that we truly have been saved in God 
is our experience of the truth of God manifesting in our own lives. It's the power that the word has when it comes upon us. It's the ministry of the spirit taking that word and driving it down into our lives and producing and affecting real change. It's a tangible, not, it's, nah, not tangible, it's a, it's a real understanding that I actually believe in Jesus Christ and I have a genuine desire to be devoted to him. Those kinds of markers are the evidence of having a real relationship with God in Christ. And if you don't have that, if your knowledge of God is mere notional and it doesn't have any effect or change in your life, then you're still lost. If any of us are saved in this room here today, it's not because of who our parents were. It's not because of our bloodlines or lineage. It's not because our parents were saved or even because we know a bunch of truth about God. If we are saved here this morning, it's because we ourselves have tasted the glory of God that is revealed in those truths and is most manifest in Jesus Christ. If we have come to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is because we have come into a personal knowledge and experience of God. And we are not resting on someone else's knowledge and experience of God. Now, we're going to see this more clearly when we get to John 3. But being born of God is not connected to being born of blood. That's point one. That was a long one. Number two. We'll probably wind up ending here, I'm assuming. Number two. John chapter 1, verse 13 tells us that the children of God, those who have received and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, are not only those who have not been born of blood, but they are also those who have not been born of the will of the flesh. Put it in a positive way. John 1.13 says that the children of God are not those... Wait. Yeah, that's okay. It's not positive, it's still negative, but we'll, we'll keep with it. They're not those who have been born of the will of the flesh. Maybe just a simpler way. Just as being born a child of God is not the result of bloodlines or family heritage, neither is it something that is produced by our own wills. When this verse speaks about the will, it's talking about someone's intention or purpose or desire. When it speaks of the flesh, that is a reference to our human nature. So when we're talking about the will of the flesh not being the means by which any of us have become children of God, what we are saying is that no sinner, or what John is saying here, is that no sinner has been born as a child of God by the will of their own flesh. Simply, that simply means that no one received Christ or salvation with God simply because they chose to receive it. Or simply because they willed to have it. People who have been saved by God are not those who have been saved simply because they made a choice to be saved. Is that not clearly what this verse is saying? Can we agree on that? That those who have been born of God are not those who have been born of the will of the flesh. That is simply and clearly what that means. See, the problem with our darkness, 
The reason why our salvation and being born of God is not... uh, The reason why our choice is not enough to bring us out of our darkness and into saving life with God is because our darkness runs deeper than the choices that we make. We are not neutral beings that are standing in the middle between good and evil and now needing to make a decision as to which way we're going to go. That's not the biblical presentation of what it means to be a fallen creature in sin, one who is depraved in our fallen Adam. We choose to live in darkness and to commit acts of evil because that is what we are. We choose to walk in darkness because we are darkness. We choose to sin because we are sinners. You've heard that phrase. You didn't become a sinner because you chose to sin. You choose to sin because you are a sinner. And that's what sinners do. The decisions and choices that we make do not make us what we are. They are the result of what we are. They're the fruit and the product that comes forth from what we are. And and let me qualify this and make something clear. I am not saying that we don't have a will and that we don't have the ability to make choices. Martin Luther uh, argued this masterfully in his book, The Bondage of the Will. John Calvin argued this wonderfully in his book, The Bondage and Liberation of the Will, when he was arguing against a guy named Figius, who was, you don't need to go into all of that, but if you want to borrow the book, I've got it. They argue very well that as human beings, we have will. We have the capacity to make choices and to choose what we want to do. But therein lies the problem. What we want to do is determined by what we are, what our nature is. So, for example, if I am a sinner, if that is what characterizes my nature, then what is it that I want to do? If I am a sinner, what do I want to do? I want to sin. And if what I want to do is sin, then guess what I'm going to choose to do? I'm going to choose to sin. See, in this way, Martin Luther and John Calvin and the other reformers argued that though human beings have will, that will is a slave to the creature. So whatever the creature is, that is going to determine how the will is used. Okay? If we are evil, we will use our will to do evil. And it's not until we have been brought out of our state of darkness and brought into a state of being in fellowship with God in the light will we be able to make choices that are in congruency or that are, that are in harmony with the light. Therefore, no sinner has ever been born again or saved from our darkness merely by the power of our own will. Now, I think we will wind up ending here. It's going to make next week's sermon really awkward, but I want you to understand why it's important to realize that you were not saved merely because you, of your own will, made a choice to be saved. 
This is getting us to the depth of God's grace as it is revealed in the gospel. Amen, the gospel according to John. Yes. Yes. That fits perfectly, actually. The gospel according to John tells us that God's sovereignty in our salvation and our utter utter inability to choose salvation is what magnifies the depth of God's love and grace. If you don't get these two categories right in your mind, you are not going to understand what it means to be saved by grace. Now, I love John Wesley. Some guys at the wedding and I were, were talking about that yesterday in my office. I've got John Wesley's works up on top of my bookshelf right next to John Bunyan and John Owen. All the Johns. I like those guys. Good Johns. I love John Wesley. I think he really grasped the glory of God in salvation. But he didn't get it as deeply as he could have. He didn't understand that salvation is about God choosing to save sinners who otherwise of their own will would choose not to be saved. Salvation is not about our using our will to, as if God is standing off passively by the wayside, offering himself to us and just waiting for someone to put him in the game, right? As if he's on the sideline of our lives and he's just over there saying, hey, I'm here. I'm here anytime you're willing to put me in the game. I want you to know I'm ready and I'm willing to enter into that game for you. That's how most people view the grace of God. That's, how, that's the pathetic view that most people have of the sovereign, holy Lord of glory. He's somewhere over on the sideline waiting for me to untie his hands so that he can do something in my life. That is not the God of the Bible. You know that picture of Jesus standing at the door and knocking? Whoever opens the door, I'll come in, to him and come in and have fellowship with him. We will sup together. You understand that that is not an invitation to those who are lost. That is an invitation to the church. A church that was going astray and that had turned their backs on the will of Christ. Christ was standing at the door knocking saying, if you don't open this door, if you don't repent and begin to do my will, I will snuff your lampstand out. I will shut the doors. When it comes to a sinner's life, when Jesus Christ wants to open the door of that sinner's life, he'll kick the dang door in. Because that's what he does and that's what the power of salvation does when it comes upon your life. I remember when I was 16, I did not want God. I remember the moment that the Lord brought me to salvation. I was not thinking about him. I was not asking for him to save me. In fact, I was asking just the opposite. I was already being looked at by colleges my sophomore year to go play inside linebacker at a a Division I school. I had an 83-mile-an-hour fastball with a great curve when I could control it. I I had excellent grades. My GPA was high. I was in top 10% of my class. Everything was going good for me. And then the Lord stepped down and utterly disrupted everything in my life. He kicked the door of my life in and he owned me as his child. He didn't wait for me to give him permission to do that. (sighs) 
The glory, the, all right. the glory of receiving salvation in Jesus Christ is not the glory of you making a, making a decision to receive it. Have you ever thought of it like that? If you say that ultimately salvation is dependent on your ability to choose to receive it, who is being glorified in that situation? You are. Because what makes the difference between you who is being saved and someone else who is not? Is it not the decision that you have chosen to make? So, oh, it's all of grace after I chose it. That's not gospel grace. The glory of the gospel and the glory of grace that's revealed in the gospel is that God chose to save those who of their own will were absolutely unwilling to be saved. And I praise God for that. That's no violation of my will. That's doing something that was good for me. Ah, get into that in a second. The glory of receiving salvation as a gift from God is that God is the one who enables us to receive that gift. Otherwise, if it were up to us, we would never receive it. You know, how does that hymn go? I've quoted it before. It's one of my favorites. And every time I'm up here, I can never remember the wording. My Lord, I did not choose thee, for that could never be my heart would still refuse thee if thou had not chosen me. Isn't that the case? Don't you see that in yourself? If God had not utterly disrupted my life, I never would have chosen him. So the glory of, the glory of gospel grace is that God chooses to save sinners even when they are in the midst of their rebellion and hostility and hatred and indifference against him. He saves the glory of salvation and the grace of the gospel is that God chooses to save sinners when he sees them at their worst. When did God choose to save Paul? It was when he was repenting and, and seeking fellowship with the church, right? No, it was when he was in the midst of persecuting the church. That's when Jesus Christ showed up and outshone the glory of the noonday sun and knocked him off his horse, struck him with blindness, and saved his soul. Paul didn't give him permission to do that. God gave himself permission to do that, and I praise God for that be missing 13 if not 14 letters of our New Testament if God hadn't done that just kidding he would have found another way so the glory of the gospel grace is that even in the deepest shadows of our darkness when with all of our wills we were choosing to sin against God still in that moment despite what we are God chose to move and save us why? Because we deserved it? Because we came to our senses and did an about face and then asked him for it? No, he did it not because of anything that he saw in us. Not even because of a choice made by our wills. 
but he did it because of his own will. Scripture makes plain, so plain and so clear that God chooses to save sinners simply because that is what he wants to do. <laughs> he looks upon a sinner and wants to save that sinner despite what that sinner is. He chooses to save sinners because it's his good pleasure to save sinners, not because of the will of the flesh, but solely and exclusively because of the will of God. That is the will that matters when it comes to our salvation. All right. We're going to end right here. I don't want to say what I'm about to say in a mean way. And I don't want to sound as if I'm trying to be demeaning, okay? Things can come across that way for me, and I definitely never mean it like that. Um, But as a shepherd appointed by Christ in this church, I love you as his people. I love you for his sake, and therefore... I must love you by saying what I'm about to say. If you disagree with what we've just been looking at in John chapter 1, verse 13, telling us that we were born of God not because of the blood nor because of the will of the flesh, if you disagree with that, You need to come to terms with the fact that you are not only disagreeing with a plain reading of this verse, but you are also, in fact, diminishing the glory of God's love revealed in the gospel. And that's a serious thing. It's 1 John 4.10. It tells us this is how we know God's love. That when we agreed to love God, he chose to love us. That when he looked ahead in time and saw who would choose him and who would choose to love him, he then chose to love them and chose to save them. That's how we know love, right? No, this verse tells us that that is not how we know the depth of God's love. The depth of God's love and the fullness and the security of that love that belongs to us in Christ is the fact that in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's not that we loved God and he sent forth his son as a token of his love. It is that we hated God and we were in rebellion against God and we were loving sin. We were his enemies and yet God sought to forge terms of peace by giving his son. He gave his son to make propitiation, to satisfy his wrath, to deal with our enmity, to do away with our sin, to wipe it out once and for all so that there would no longer be any hindrances to God's saving grace coming upon a sinner. This is how we know love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. God's love is not more glorious because He decides to give it to those who will of their own will choose to have it. 
His love is seen most gloriously by the fact that God chose to love us freely, even when we were not choosing to love him. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did not wait for us to renew our lives, to, to clean up our act, to turn over the new leaf before he gave over his son. He gave over his son while we were still sinners, while we were yet enemies, the son of God stepped down into this world to pay the price of our sin to rise again in victory over it, to usher us home to glory, not because we deserved it, but simply because he chose to love us and chose to do it. I, you know, man, I don't have time to get into all of this, but you, you understand the security that this doctrine offers to you if you are a believer. That God chose to save you when you were at your worst, when you were hating him and you were in active rebellion against him, walking in the ways of the world and embracing and imbibing the fullness of sin. If God chose to save you at that moment, how much more security is offered to you? How much more assurance of God's love and grace towards you is given to you now that you have a heart that actually loves God and does not want to run in sin anymore? If he saved you when you were in outright rebellion against him, what about now? Now that you desire to walk in his ways, you desire to keep his statutes, you desire to, to abide in Christ, you desire to love him more, what about now? Is his love not more fully manifest? And, and can you not be more assured of that love now that you have been made new in Christ? An Arminian who believes they can lose their salvation cannot have that kind of assurance of God's love because it's all dependent on their will and their ability to maintain their status in that love. I'm glad it's not dependent on me. I would have fallen from grace a long time ago. 1 John 4.19, it says, We love because he first loved us. A view of God's love and of his work of saving sinners that is less than this sovereign expression of God's free will not only diminishes our perspective of the glory of God that's been revealed in Christ, but it also gives us less security and less assurance of our salvation in him. Let me end on this quote from a guy named Archibald Alexander. He wrote one of my favorite books uh, religious, on religious experience. And in this book, he's dealing with, uh, in this particular section, with being born again. And he says here, as he's dealing with being born again, the new birth, he says, here I cannot but remark, please listen carefully, we're done after this. Here I cannot, re I cannot but remark that among all the preposterous notions which a new and crude theology has poured forth so profusely in our day, there is none more absurd than that a dead sinner can beget new life in himself. The very idea of a man's becoming his own father in the spiritual regeneration is as unreasonable as such a supposition in relation to our first birth. None of us conceived ourselves, is his point in our physical birth. What makes us think we can conceive ourselves in relation to our spiritual birth? Billy Graham believed that. I just reread his book, How to Be Born Again, last week, and it's just sad to read what he had to say about the new birth. He missed it. 
The very idea of a man's becoming his own father in the spiritual regeneration is as unreasonable as such a supposition in relation to our first birth. He says, away with all such soul-destroying, God-dishonoring sentiments. Be gone. <laughs> Throw them into the pit. May they never rise again. And then he quotes John 1, verse 13. Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but who were born of God. To have been born of God, irrespective of what we were able to offer from our will, gives us assurance and confidence to rest in his goodness and to revel in the glory that by his power he's made us children of God. So I pray that you will do that, that you will revel in this glory that God's given you through Jesus Christ. And if you don't know that glory for yourself, then I pray that you will run to God and have dealings with him in Christ until he gives you assurance of being his child. It's the spirit that testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Romans 8, 17. If you don't have the testimony of the spirit in your life that you are a child of God, then you need to run to God until he gives you that assurance. You need to put your faith in Christ. You need to trust in his life and in his sacrifice and in his resurrection to make you right with God. And you need to abandon hope and all else. And keep running to him until he assures your soul that you belong to him. Now let's pray. Father, thank you for the great work of salvation and grace and hope that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the love, Lord, that, that moved beyond what we had to offer you, Lord, and flows freely to us simply out of who you are and what you have chosen to be and to do to and for us. You've chosen to be our Father. You've chosen to be our Redeemer. You've chosen to be our Savior. In your Son, you've chosen to be our husband, our perfect provider. And Lord, I thank you that in your grace, by your Spirit, you've enabled us to see the reality of that, and you've called us to receive it and to rest in it. Lord, help us do so. Give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the benediction, uh, may you with a heart of thankfulness hear it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, who also will surely do it. Amen. And may you go on the peace of that truth. Amen.